Good morning. Uh, I think it's good morning. It's good afternoon. Uh, I just want to say welcome to Mosaic. My name is Andre, and I'm the college pastor here, for those of you who might not know me. And one thing I just want to say, I promise you, Mosaic, we believe in grace here, okay? And the auditions, tryouts, whatever you want to call it at the banquet, that's our way of loving you as best as we can, okay? So you have a good time. We have a good time, okay? So please, if you're interested in auditioning, don't let that scare you. Uh, we're going to do it with a lot of love, I promise, okay? And so we already have a, a couple of good lineups, and so hopefully you'll be able to make it out. Um, if you have your Bibles, please flip to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and I'll read for us all the way to chapter 5, verse 10. If you don't have your uh, Bibles or your phones, feel free to also look right behind me. All right, chapter 4, verse 14, this is the reading of God's Word. Since then, we have a high priest, a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As P. Doug says, go back to this, read it, meditate it, love it. Um, and as we begin, let me just pray for us, and then we'll get started. Um, Father, I just want to say thank you this morning that we're gathered here together like this. And Father, we just pray, Lord, speak to us today. Um, you have your words for us, and I pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to hear, God. And I pray that whatever week that we've had, help us to bring this before you, um, knowing that you listen, knowing that you hear, and that you, knowing you are good and kind and compassionate. So we thank you. We love you. Pray all this in your name. Amen and amen. Um, this past Sunday, I had the honor and uh, pleasure of officiating my first wedding ever. Um, it's my first one. Um, I got it um, right. I did it. It was, it was okay, I think, you know. Um, but it was really special because it was two of my friends that I had the pleasure of marrying, someone I knew for like 10 years. And, you know, being up there doing the ceremony is actually really different than kind of being in the seats. And I never, I never noticed that, never realized that. But... 
One thing, you know, throughout the ceremony that I, I thought was so special, so profound, and so sacred wasn't the worship, right? Although worship was good. Um, it wasn't the mess. It wasn't the sermon I gave, okay? Um, and it, it wasn't even the exchanging of the rings. But in my opinion, the most sacred part of the wedding ceremony was actually the exchanging of the vows that they make before God. There was something about it. I was so nervous. I would look at the bride and I would say, you know, I mean, I look at the groom. Hey, repeat after me. Uh, I, John Doe, take you, Jane Doe, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward until death do us part. Now, you know, the groom, the groom was a mess. Like, like he, he was crying throughout the whole thing. Uh, the bride, cool as a cucumber. She's chilling. She's enjoying the moment. But the groom was, uh, was a mess. But as, as they were reciting these words, I felt it. You know, like I felt it. I loved it. I was so happy for them. And there was something so special about the vow they were making. Because essentially, the vow that they're making is that through thick and thin, I'm with you. Whatever happens. I'm with you. Like, we'll get through it together all the way to the end. And something you need to know about me is uh, I'm a romantic. I love rom-coms, okay? I've, um, I love it. It makes me feel good inside. I love the story of it all. So that's why I love moments like this. But also, I've lived long enough to understand that just because you say vows does not mean you uphold vows. I've experienced that, you know, in my family. Um, and so, like, I get that. And I get that the power of the vows is not in the words in of itself, but actually the power of the vows is held in the actions that you make every single day as time progresses and the intentions of your heart. I understand that's where the power comes from, where the couple will make a decision every single day to commit to each other again and again and again. So now, what if I told you the vows that every married couple recited and will recite, God made that vow with you, right? To, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward. What if God made those vows with you? And not did he make those vows. What if God actually proven the validity of his words through his selfless action throughout time and with an intentional heart? Now, what if that happened, right? How would that make you feel? And the reason I bring this vow up, because I think that's what the Hebrew book, the letter of Hebrews is essentially about. It's God making his vows to his people again and again and again so that they never waver in their faith Throughout our whole Hebrew sermon series, we've been talking about um, Jesus, right? And we've been talking that Jesus is what? That Jesus is greater, right? And so chapter one, that Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. That Jesus is greater than any type of rest available to us. And we get to our passage in chapter four, and the author just goes out, guns blazing, and he says, Jesus is greater than any high priest that you have ever met in your life. Right, Because the Hebrew Christians at this time, they've been so tempted to walk away from Jesus and to go back to the familiar practices of earthly high priests, to go back to the Old Testament rituals, Old Testament practices, because it was familiar. 
because it was comfortable and it made them feel safe and secure and it made them feel like they were close with God when in reality, it wasn't doing that stuff for them. So the author of Hebrews says, hey, I know you're seeking God in these ways, but let me tell you a better way. And his name is Jesus. Let me tell you of an eternal high priest and his name is Jesus. And this high priest If you can get him, if he's your high priest, that means you have access to God, intimacy to God, 24-7, 365 days out of the year. What kind of security would that have done for these people? And our high priest, Jesus Christ, makes these vows with you and me. So if you're sitting in these chairs, if you're sitting here today, and you're just unable to believe that's where you can be, if you're unable to believe that's where you are right now, uh, this message is for you. Uh, I really hope that you would listen to this, that you would take it in, um, that you would really work it out for yourselves. Um, but first, I understand that Jesus' role as high priest, it, that's, a, that's a foreign thought to you and me. Not only is it foreign, I understand that the word priest can be a little bit triggering for you and me, especially with all the scandals, the things that have happened you know, in previous years. But I want you to know that Jesus makes no association with those scandals and things like that. That is not of Christ. That is not of God. Um, but secondly, that it's extremely important that we talk about this. And this, this role that Jesus assumes in, as high priest, it's probably one of the most important roles he takes on. And the author of Hebrews keeps building on how important that is. It's so important, the author of Hebrews mentions the word priest 26 times throughout the book of Hebrews. 26 times. Not only does he mention it 26 times, but he mentions something about Christ's priesthood in every single chapter. In every single chapter, he slides it in there. He puts it in there. So I'm pretty sure that means it's important. And it seems like he's saying, pay attention to this concept. Um, but if you're still not convinced how important it is, Hebrews 8.1, the author writes this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The author says right here, the main point of this entire letter is that you may know you have a high priest who is risen, who is exalted, who is faithful, who's working right now in your life, drawing you close to God. That's crazy, but that's what Hebrews 8.1 is saying. And so I want to take some time unpacking what the, what the role of the high priest is, because I'm sure we kind of don't understand it. Take a look at Hebrews 5.1. This is when the author describes the role of the earthly high priest. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So we see the role of the high priest is twofold. One He's to stand in the gap between the people and God. He's meant to represent Israel into God. But the second role that he's, he assumes is he offers sacrifices and sins for the people. And so let me use an illustration of kind of what standing in the gap means. And let me use the illustration of how I met my wife, Nita. Um, back in February 2019, uh, I met my wife, Nita. Um, and the way that we actually met was through a blind date. 
Um, and what was crazy about how we met wasn't the blind date, because if you know her, if you know me, blind dates are just something that we would never done, okay? Um, we're one of those people that's like, we wanna be with, you know, we wanna date our friends, right? So, uh, but we met blind date, but what's crazy is actually that we had two separate people urging us together to meet. And, and neither, neither of these parties knew that this was happening. So on my side, uh, my friend John, he's currently the college director at Remnant Westside in New York City, in City. I met him in seminary. And for the first five months that I've known him, he kept saying, hey, like, you want to meet somebody at my church? It's like, no, I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm satisfied in my singleness. I don't need nobody. Um, and then, uh, but he kept pushing. And I was just like, you know what? Sure, let's give it a try. You're really adamant about this. So John on my side. Now on Nita's side, there was somebody else named Jimmy and Christine. They're a married couple. And Jimmy and Christine were trying to introduce me to her. Okay? So at the same time, these, these people were in the middle, standing in the gap, pulling us together. And, you know, we were just like, you know what? You guys are so adamant. Okay, we said yes. Um, we, and we said yes uh, to meeting each other. And that night, as I was going home from uh, class, I get a text message from Jimmy, and he texts me, bro, this is divine, with 10 exclamation points. You guys are for sure going to get married, you know? Um, and the crazy thing, three years later, we actually got married. Like, that's something neither of us would have ever thought would have happened, but that's where we are. Now, you might be asking, what does that have anything to do with high priests? Good question. Uh, well, in the same way John, Jimmy, Christine stood in the gap between me and Nita, the high priest stood in the gap between the people and God. Right? If it wasn't for my three friends, I would have never met Nita. I wouldn't have been married right now, you know, and I wouldn't have been blessed to know her, her family, and all the things else that has come with it. In the same way, similarly, because of the high priest that stands between the gap of the people and God, they're able to know God. They're able to have a relationship with him. They're able to know him intimately. They're able to be connected to him. And that's the role of the high priest. And the high priest, their, their main job was to bring the people together, to grab the hands of both people and say, I really need you to meet because it's going to be great. It's divine, bro. Like that was their job. That's what they were getting at. But there was a problem with these high priests. And the problem with these high priests was that there was something in their hearts called sin. And because of this virus in their hearts, no matter sacrifice that they did, no matter how many times they did it, it was never enough. So they had to do it again and again and again. Look at verses two to three. It writes this. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. That's the sin in their hearts. And because of this weakness, the high priest is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Because the high priest, like the people, were born with sin in their hearts, no sacrifice that they offered was ever enough to cover them. It was only enough for the past and present sin. So I could imagine these high priests doing the whole sacrifice, looking at the poor Israelite and saying, hey, your sins are forgiven today. I'll see you next week. And that happened week after week, month after month, year after year. No, they could wash their white shirts as many times as they wanted to. It was only a matter of time before they found another stain on it. 
So imagine if gaining access to God was like that for you and me today. Just picture it, right? Imagine, imagine you parked your car, you walked into the lobby right there where all the amazing food is laid out. But before you can even get in there, you had to do a ceremonial washing before you could enter. And, and, and priest Gina, priest Dennis, priest Jason, ye out there today, um, they were the ones who were like, you can't get in until you do the ceremonial washing. So, so you wash yourself. And then you get into this sanctuary, you grab your seats, but before you can even sing, priest Josh Song sacrifices a bull on behalf of you. And now you can sing. And for some, pre- for some reason, Josh fits that role so good. Um, but, now, but, that, but now that's not even enough, right? But now imagine that you're sitting in these seats and now there's a curtain from the ceiling to the floor. And behind the curtain is where the Ark of the Covenant is, where God resides, but you can't even enter there. The only person that could enter back there is the number one high priest, Pastor Dave, and only he can enter and make sacrifice for our sins. From our perspective as Christians who know Jesus, how tiring does that sound? How exhausting does that sound? How insecure would your relationship be with God if that was the case? If that's what it took for you to feel close and feel right with God? So obviously, when you come to Mosaic, that's not your experience. We don't do that. But that doesn't mean we don't have 21st century man-made rituals like that in our lives right now doesn't mean that we don't have modern-day sacrificing tools and different ways we feel close to God. We do it the same way like the Israelites. We just do it in a different way. Maybe you sinned. You fell short for whatever it was. And so you tell yourself, tonight, I'm going ha- to pray an hour until I feel clean. I'm going to pray for an hour until I feel clean. But if that's not good enough, then you're like, you know what? Like, I need to be rebuked. I'm going to read uh, Psalm 51, or I'm going, to read, uh, I'm going to read the book of Romans, and I'm just going to make sure that I feel clean, whatever it takes. But let's say you did something like really bad, like you felt really short, and in order to make up for it, you decide, you know what, today's Sunday, I'm going to attend both the 9.30 and the 11.30 service, and I'm going to sing extra loud because that's what it's going to take for me to feel close to God. You see what you're doing there? You're not actually having an experience with God. You're just participating in guilt management. You're just participating in something that's going to make you feel like you fabricated an experience with God so that you feel everything is good until everything is not good. But the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus Christ as the sinless high priest is that these self-man-made rituals come to an end. Fake experiences come to an end. And that insecurity of where you stand with him in your relationship is defined. Because through this role, Jesus made us perfectly right with God. You have perfect access, perfect intimacy. Look at verses 15 to 16. Look at the invitation that the author is saying. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As a college pastor, one thing that I'm constantly counseling, encouraging our college students through is that they actually have a God who is approachable. Constantly. Because I don't know about you guys, but college folks, they sin a lot. All right, like, like us older folks, not much, right? Uh, but our college folks, they make a lot of mistakes. And so one of the things that I have to constantly remind them is you have a God you can approach. You have a God you can have access to. You have a God that you can meet with and be with and be restored. Because for them, when they think of God, the thing that keeps themselves from coming to God is the very thing that he wants. It's their sins, their failures, their brokenness. But our college students, when they think of God, they imagine a God with his arms crossed in heaven, looking down at them, shaking his head with so much disappointment. And because of that, they, 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 they're just like, hey, like, what's the point? Like, what's the point if I come to him? He's not going to accept me anyway. Like, he's already going to reject me before even, even I get to him because I know what I've done. I know the mistakes that I've made. Why should I even try to go up to him? And obviously, this is not something our college students only wrestle with, but all of us here wrestle with, I wrestle with, and what we need to know that that is the furthest thing from the truth. I think a lot of us, we imagine, like, imagine a little boy or little girl, like, middle school has to make those bridge projects out of straws, but they're getting it all wrong because they don't know better. They're making a mess. They're, they're just putting things in the wrong places, and they're like, you know what? I'm going to ask my dad for help. So, so they bring the project to dad, and the dad looks at that. And, he, and do you think the dad's going to be like, that is the ugliest, most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, get, like take that out of my face. <laughs> I hope not, right? Like, like, and I know for sure that, that God is not like that. Like, what father, if he's truly good, would ever do that? But the father, knowing his child's weakness, right, knowing the mess that he made, he's like, let's do this together. Let's build this together. Let's work it together. And that's the type of attitude we should have when we approach God. Verse 16 says that you can draw near confidently. You can draw near boldly. Because notice the throne that you're approaching in verse 16. You're approaching a throne of grace. It's a gracious one. It's not a condescending one. It's not a rebuking one, but it's a gracious one because upon this throne sits a gracious high priest. So, we, so pretty much what you, when we read this, our, our attitude should be, yo, I'm bringing my struggles. I'm bringing my mess. I'm bringing the things that separate me from God because he's the only one that can cover it. So maybe this means in this week, it actually means when you sit with God and you pray, you can begin your prayer with God. Thank you that I'm beloved. Thank you that you delight in me. Thank you that I don't have to do anything right here, right now to feel close to you, with you, but I have it because of what you've done. And maybe that means that for those of us who fall every single day after you fall, you can go right on your knees. You can go to him and say, God, thank you that I'm forgiven. Not in a way that we take advantage of it by no means, but in a way where we know that even though I don't feel close to God whatsoever, he's closer than the very breath that I breathe that he's here. What would your faith look like just by practicing that? I know that's something that has transformed my life purposely, so draw near confidently. So that's the kind of high priest you and I have in Jesus. 
But in this next part, what I want to focus on is the three reasons why we can draw near to this high priest. And the three reasons are this. Number one, he sympathizes with us. Number two, he suffered for us. Number three, he promised to deal gently with us. Sympathizes, suffered, deals gently. So check out verse 15 again. This is, he sympathizes with us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's important about this word sympathy or sympathesi in the Greek is that it's meant to show us how close Jesus desires to get to you and me. Sympathy is broken up to two words, soon and pathesi, which means with suffering, with passion. What that means is when he sympathizes with you and me, he shares in our suffering. He's not distant. He's not apart, but he gets right next to us, shoulder to shoulder, and he's there with us. The author is saying Jesus stepped into our shoes and he entered our world. It's as if God in heaven was looking down from heaven and he just sees a bunch of ants, a bunch of ants on an anthill. And when he sees these ants, his heart overflows with compassion and love. And he says, I want to be with them. So what does he do? He turns himself into an ant to be with them, to know them, to experience what they experience. And that's what he did with you and me. He became an ant. He became human. The immortal became mortal. It's incredible. Tell me about it. Like... <laughs> And so the immortal became mortal. That means while Jesus had the ability... Okay, so what does it mean, right? The immortal became mortal. That could have not come at a better timing. Um, the, God, the God became man. He experienced what he, we experienced. And what that means is, even though he had the ability to command the stars and the skies as an infant, that means he also woke up with bedhead sometimes. Even though he could have turned water into wine... That means he also had acne at age 13. He could heal every disease and physical ailment, but I choose to believe that when he was 26, just like me, he woke up with a tweaked neck sometimes. It means that he also experienced the brokenness of being human too. He wasn't ignorant to that. He experienced all the pains that we experienced. He knew what loneliness felt like when his disciples abandoned him, when he, need, when, when he needed them the most. He knew what it felt like to lose a loved one, something we are far too used to experiencing. And he for sure knew what temptation felt like when he was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. But the difference between us and him, the difference between him and every other earthly high priest is that in all these things, he never disobeyed God once. He kept trusting. He kept obedient. He kept faithful. The second half of verse 15, if you read it, it says that he's been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. And right here, I understand some of you might be thinking, I skipped to that part. I've been waiting to ask you about it. What do you mean he never sinned? How can he possibly sympathize with me if he never sinned? How would someone who never sinned understand what it's like to be a sinner? 
Isn't that the whole point of what sympathy means, that you understand, that you share? So in my mind, it's not registering that he knows my struggles, he knows my temptations, because I don't think he does. And that's exactly the point we have to see. Because Jesus was sinless, and because he faced the full force of temptation, he's the only one that actually knows what temptation feels like. You and I, we don't know what full force of temptation feels like because we give in after five minutes. We give it, maybe some of you, like you're really good, you give in after an hour. But Jesus, never once did he give in. He faced temptation to the full. And because that, he's the only one who knows what it actually feels like. Because he was completely faithful in his testing, he's the only one who was, who was ever fully tested. C.S. Lewis says this, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, but Jesus, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, he's also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. If there's anyone who can sympathize with you, it's Jesus. Because he knows better than you what it's like to be you. And do you know what's going to happen if you actually begin to believe this? If you actually say, okay, Jesus, I see you. You get me. You know me. You've experienced lost, brokenness, everything that I have to. Okay, fine. If that's true, that means that when you fall, when you struggle, when you just can't see God in your life, God is not someone you walk away from, but he's someone you draw near to. Because you know he gets me. He gets it. Like, we, like when we're struggling, we all have a couple of those friends, right? Like people that like, I need to call this person because they're going to get me. I need to call this person. There are people you definitely won't call because you're like, he, they're not going to get me. They're just going to tell me empty words. It's not, it's just, we're not, he doesn't get it. But somebody who gets it, somebody who knows, you don't even have to say anything. You can just be there together and you're comforted because you share mutual pain and you get it. And so Mosaic Church, you have a friend like that and his name is Jesus, our high priest. So draw near to him. The second thing, he suffered for us. So not only does he sympathize with us, but he also suffered with us. Uh, take a look at verses seven to nine. It says this. In the days of his flesh, okay, meaning while he was on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Okay, when you read this passage, it should instantly remind you of the Garden of Gethsemane, right? The garden where Jesus was, was just pouring his heart out the night before he got arrested. Um, and in this Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying, he was pouring out his heart, he was crying, he was sweating blood, right? He was doing the whole thing. And the reason he was pouring out his heart was because there was a real genuine internal struggle going on in his heart. I think a lot of us, when we think of Jesus, we forget that he was man too. We just focus on he was God. And what that means is that Jesus' obedience was automatic. Like there was no struggle there. Jesus is God, right? But what this shows you, 
What Luke 22, uh, 42 shows you when he prays, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me, that shows you that the God-man had a genuine vulnerable struggle in his heart. And when he prayed those words, what he was saying was this, God, if there's any way that I could get access to your people, to you, without suffering, let me do that. If there's any way that I could gain eternal life for your people that doesn't involve me going on that cross, facing the pain that I'm about to face, he says, can we try that? But Jesus being the perfect, faithful high priest, he ends that prayer with the most obedient prayer I ever heard in my life. And he prays, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prays the most perfect, obedient, and prayer. And it's because of his journey towards suffering that verse 9 tells us that he was made perfect. It was through his suffering he was made perfect. What that means is he perfectly understands you and me. He became the perfect high priest who could stand in the gap between you and me. Whenever you see the word perfect in the Bible, it has to do with integrity. It has to do with something was tested. Something was, was, was just, the fire was on. It was tested and tried, and it was proven as true. So when scripture says that Jesus was made perfect as our savior, as our high priest, he was tested and it was proven true that he is what we needed to know God and to get access to him. And as the greater high priest, the beautiful thing about him is that he didn't just perform the sacrifice but he suffered as the sacrifice. And because Jesus was perfect as the sinless high priest, his sacrifice was good once and for all. And because he was the perfect sacrifice without sin, it could cover every blemish, every fall, every sin. So that means that the the earthly high priest, the best words of sympathy they could have given to the people were, your sins are forgiven today. I'll see you next week. Jesus can say to us, Since yesterday, today, tomorrow, covered. It is finished. Access to God, forever. No more sacrifices. No more man-made rituals. No more works righteousness, legalistic tendencies. You can go to God right now. And this leads us to our last and final point. The reason we can draw near to God is because he promises to deal gently with us. Check out uh, Hebrews 5.2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. What I I love about this word, word, deal gently, is that it's the same root word as sympathy. It's the same exact word. So when sympathy says, sympathesi, deal gently is also pathesi, which means with passion, with suffering. But the difference is the first word in front of it means like a restraint kind of passion. So if the first one was like, he goes all in with passion, the second one, he kind of restrains passion. And what does that mean? He gives a quiet kind of passion. He gives a tender kind of passion. He gives a gentle kind of passion. That means he deals gently with his people. Dane Ortland, in I believe, um, I think Mosaic, one of Mosaic's favorite books as a community that I, I noticed a lot of people reading was uh, Gentle and Lowly. And so D- Dane Ortland, from that book, he writes this. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. It's not about the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. 
Whatever our offense, he will deal gently with us because he will know just how to receive us. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. You know, because when, 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 the, when the verse here in verse 2 says, he deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward, that's the author's way of saying all people, right? Because if you look throughout the Bible, there's, sins are essentially categorized under two main umbrellas, ignorant sins and wayward sins, a.k.a. deliberate sins, accidental sins, sins of commission, sins of omission, sins we know that we're doing, sins we have no idea that we're committing. And so when the author says he deals gently with the ignorant and wayward, he's saying all people I deal gently with, whether you know what you're doing or whether you don't. So if you are deliberately walking away like the prodigal son in Luke 15, Jesus is there saying, I'll deal gently with you. Come to me. Or if we're the type of people who have no idea what we're, sin- what we're doing, why, why we're sinning, he says, yeah, even you, come to me. I will deal gently with you. Does that move your heart to want to approach Jesus? That he deals gently? Because maybe for so many of us, God in our minds was not a gentle God. Maybe God in our minds was a lot like our fathers, a lot like our mothers, our grandparents, who was not gentle, who was waiting to point fingers, waiting to see what was wrong. The scripture says, because he's so compassionate, because he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he says, come to me. I will deal gently with you. I am kind I'm compassionate, I'm gentle. So now what if I said there was somebody in our community who had all of these three traits? Somebody here was able to sympathize with you, was what suffered for you, he put his money where his mouth was, and they would deal gently with you. I promise you there's gonna be a line of people waiting to be friends with that person. Because isn't that the type of person we, we want to be? Isn't that the type of person we want in our partners? Isn't that the type of per- part person we want in our corner as our friends? But the passage, the author of Hebrews is telling you and me that we have someone like that, and his name is Jesus. Sympathizes. He suffered, and he deals gently with you. Don't wait to come to him, right? You don't even have to wait till you go home today. As soon as we close in prayer and as we sing this next song, sing it with your heart that he knows Sing it knowingly that you're singing to a God who knows you better than you. So let him minister to you. And remember, when you feel so far from God, when you're so stuck in your own sin, like Jimmy and John and Christine were my high priests with Nita, you have Jesus pulling both of you together saying, God wants to know you. Know him. It's divine, bro. Uh, Let's pray together.